speaking with one of my personal favorite composers. His music is uh, beloved and cherished by fans across the globe, and his style and sound is instantly recognizable. Uh, John Powell has been a bright beaming light in the film industry ever since his first score with uh, Face Off, and all the way to his most recent uh, score, How to Train Your Dragon 2. John, I can't thank you enough for your uh, time today. Thanks so much for uh, speaking. It's a pleasure. Um, so now I think everyone knows that you kind of got your start working with Hans at Media Ventures, like along with many other great composers who also became these kind of leading auteurs. But how did that start initially? I mean, uh, did you meet Hans somewhere? That and most of all, why film music? Why did you decide on that path? Um, I'm not sure I decided on that path. I think you know I just liked making music from the age of seven. Mm -hmm. I picked up a violin. Um, and I really got something out of it that nothing else in life seemed to be giving me. Um, and so as I pursued music and I then started writing songs with friends and then trying out all sorts of different styles of music as a teenager, playing a bit of guitar, playing percussion, anything I could really get my hands on to, to try. And um, I think as I went through college studying composition, it just kind of, you realize at that point you're at the sharp end of trying to figure out how to make a living. <laughs> and as a composer, you haven't got that many options, really. Um, so I think I just came out of... I mean, one, one plan I had was to, was to produce records, but that didn't really work out. And, um, and I, so I, I just kind of moved over into doing advertising music. And, and the advertising music uh, that I did tended to be more cinematic, mm -hmm. uh, and then a few few years later, the, the same company I was working for, Hans used to work for years before that. And so he came back to London to work on a film called White Fang that he was rescoring over, literally over Christmas, including Christmas Day. I mean, he had about a week to write and rewrite the music, you know, to write the whole score. And so he got a group of people in, including uh, Fiacra Trench, who's a very good, great Irish composer. But he doesn't. He, he writes on paper, and he needed somebody to kind of enter all the stuff into the into the Hans realm, and that was my gig. So I, I, that's how I met Hans, and and it was kind of all hands on deck, if you excuse the pun. <laughs> I'm not even sure that's a pun. Um, so you know, I remember I had a, an hour on Christmas morning to open presents <laughs> with my oh, wife, wow. and then I was straight off to the studio for the rest of the day. And so I think he 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 likes anybody that's willing to kind of absolutely put their life on hold and work you know 24 hours a day i mean he, he has t-shirts you know printed up that say you know sleep is for wimps <laughs> and um and so i think i was i was i was programming for fiacre in the day and then at night i was writing cues as well for him so i think he he saw me as a you know somebody who could be an asset <laughs> absolutely i mean i can imagine um and uh so i mean just kind of when you're kind of getting into that into that film film music uh, world, you know what 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 did you find that really moved you as a storyteller? You know, did you certain films or co uh, film composers that you really attached to, whether you were you know, growing up or you were discovering as you were kind of getting into the craft? No, I think I think it's all it's all kind of baked in much earlier than that. I think there's certain things that hit you. I mean, the important films in my life when I was younger were you know a lot of cartoons. A lot of Tom and Jerry and a lot of, you know, um, uh, Chuck Jones, mm -hmm. Warner Brothers style, early Chuck Jones. And and then in, in other films, you know, things like I remember Marathon Man and um, 
and uh, Cash 22 was very Cash 22 was a very important film. It, it gave me very much a kind of a realization of um, my opinion of warfare and, uh, and the military, and so that was, that was an important film. But I don't remember the music from that. But I do remember the music from the <laughs> the Magnificent Seven, and I do remember the music from um, you know The Great Escape and Six Three Three Squadron and you know. Things like that. So uh, it tended to be this kind of this paradox of of growing up, you know, becoming a pacifist with one set of films and enjoying the music of another set of war films that definitely weren't pacifist films. Um, so that was kind of um, how I kind of got into my probably complex, rather complicated feelings about what music can do for a film. I mean, the the essential thing is that you have to realize that a lot of the manipulation that music can do for a very kind of patriotic film um, or a stirring nationalist film or a heroic film, you know, was really kind of nailed down by, um, you know, a, a film that we we like to think didn't affect us, but it, it did as, as Hollywood is really, you know, that, that ability to be able to manipulate is built really rather heavily on on uh, on uh, a, a Nazi film <laughs> uh, that was made by uh, you know made uh, for the was it the 1934 Olympics or six Olympics I can't remember um, Lenny Riefenstahl's uh, Triumph of the Will and it uses Wagner and they had a composer as well who who wrote Wagner-esque music and it's so I think it's Parsifal, you know, this amazing music of Parsifal stirring you as you see, see these Aryan athletes, you know, uh, preparing to, you know, show the world <laughs> that that's you know, the, the peak of, of humanity. And that ability of that filmmaker, Lenny Riefenstahl, to, to, to with images uh, and uh, imagery and music to stir you you know i mean even as a jew i sit there going wow yes they are quite good you know and 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 you you think oh my god that's how powerful music can be and so it's a very dangerous um it's a very dangerous weapon that uh, that we wield and we're part of we're a big part of, of wielding it for hollywood so i've always been a bit kind of torn by this this feeling and i really think it comes from this this kind of um this dichotomy of two types of film that i I loved, and so the animation on the side of this never interfered with that paradox. Right. And so I think that's why I probably ended up in, in animation so much. So because I mean, you did kind of early in your career, you did in the '90s, you you were pushing kind of that a modern uh, action scoring pulse, and you know now you do more animation in in this point of your career. So I mean, what is there something in animation that speaks to you more as a storyteller? I mean, what can you do with animation that you really can't get from live action? Well, I've been. I found in my career that I, I was, I was able to write music that I enjoyed more. You know, uh, much as I enjoy live, the live-action films I've done, I, I tended to feel that I was having to hold myself back a lot mm-hmm. musically. I mean, I'm a terrible overwriter, perhaps, or I'm just a, a big show-off. I'm not sure. <laughs> 
but the main thing was that even though you know the born identity was was deliberately built on minimalism and i and i do i, I happen to be a, a great lover of minimalism i studied a lot of reich at college and and uh, i do love philip glass and you know so the principles of minimalism were what born was built on really um but that only gets me so far i i, I don't I don't find that the music I write for in that style gets, gives me as much pleasure, perhaps, as some of the, you know, when you get to write music for dragons flying, and <laughs> uh, or, or better still, uh, you know, a, a young a young pair of kids on top of a dragon flying and right, yeah. uh, falling in love. I mean, that's that's one of those moments that's just very hard to find in in, in uh, live action. They tend to be, if they're big enough to have the budget to have a scene like that they tend to be so built on 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 a warrior on a, on a warrior fixation that i just can't do them and uh, i mean and i noticed that too in your music i mean i noticed that you know your earlier live action stuff you do kind of have those more of rhythms and pulses and um and then with your animation scoring you do have those kind of i mean you always have a lot melodies and themes but here you, i mean with your animation scores you do have these kind of big themes and which is what i really love about your music so i mean when you're writing a theme uh i'm trying to i guess try to get in your head where does the the theme come from is that the first thing you do they just pop in your head when you're in the shower do you have to sit on a piano and kind of hear it play out do you have to see some images or i mean how does it kind of the process for a theme come up come up i think i i'm only ever in my head i'm only ever really able to create kind of a um a feeling of mm -hmm. what i think something should have and then it's basically yes down to the piano sitting there messing around until you know some interesting notes happen and interesting chord sequence happens um, and once that's happened then the piece can often take a long time to really kind of mature the tune I, I mean I spend quite a lot of time with the tunes in kind of proto versions um, you know <laughs> they can sometimes be you know ten times in a film and and I will go back to all ten cues and change them time after time after time when I realize, you know, you get to the eleventh cue to use the tune and you figure out how to do it slightly differently and that's the solution to balance the tune better. Mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, good, uh, good tunes, when you get a good tune, it's a bit like an equation that balances. It's got the right the right construction of, of um, you know, sort of symmetry and asymmetry and and rhythmic interest and 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 shape interest um and you know and they're, they're very that's why they're very hard to do i think and you know i i really only kind of hear music about two seconds after i stop the sequencer so, <laughs> so if i play through something or i'm you know and then i stop uh, I, I can hear it carry on but only for a few seconds and so that, that i do it two seconds at a time oh wow uh, well i mean i just your themes are magnificent so i mean you're doing a great job <laughs> Um, yeah, I was just looking at your career a little bit more. You have also had kind of two major uh, collaborative uh, composing partnerships, um, one being Harry Gregson-Williams and the other being uh, Hans Zimmer. Uh, do you have to, when you're working with another composer that has a strong style like Harry or Hans, do you have to adapt the way you both work, kind of depending on, I guess, the film, I guess, as for sure, but uh, with whomever you're composing? Like, what's the di you know, for instance, what's the difference between writing a score with Harry, like, you know, Chicken Run or or Ants or Shrek, or writing with Hans for, like, Kung Fu Panda? Well, actually, my most important 
collaboration writing with other people was with Gavin Greenaway, which was way before any of this. I oh, mean, yes. We started, yes, started course, writing yeah. together at college. And, and so I think he and I developed a way of working together that, you know, it's actually quite rare for composers to, to work together, especially composers who write apart. I mean, sometimes you get, you know, teams that just stay together and they kind of, they, you know, one does technical and one does melodic or harmonic. You know, I don't know. You know, there's there's a few, you know, in existence. But with Harry and Hans and I, obviously, everybody can do anything, really, in theory. So, um, it, but it was, I think, with Gavin that I kind of figured out, he and, he and I figured out a way of working together in a, in, in a way that was fun for both of us. Mm-hmm. You know, and we'd basically, you know, pass the difficult stuff to each other when the other one was tired you know so you take over on the boring bits and you'd take over on the tricky bits when the other person was stumped and you'd sit and work with each other on the main bulk of the important material um and that's how it basically went down with with harry i mean we would sit together and, and write themes sometimes we wrote themes apart and then he'd give me a theme and say, you know, I think this could be good for that. What can you do with it? And so I'd play around with it and try and do different arrangements of it and, and vice versa. And then with hands, it's the same thing as well. You know, you kind of sit sit in the room and you play around with each other's very early ideas. And, you know, and, and he, you know, he kind of, he'll take something that, you know, I was playing around with and, and fix the kind of the nebulousness of it, perhaps at that point, and I'll take something that he was playing around with and make it way smaller than he'd ever imagined it, or something, you know, or just play around, make it twice as fast as he expected it to go. <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of really kind of simple things you can do with themes, and that's that's the kind of the job of the arranger. So we were we were always kind of each other's, um, you know, each other's arranger, each other's sort of confidant in the sense that sometimes you need somebody who you trust to hear a, a tune or an idea that's just at that point is just stupid <laughs> and it's going to be good but you, it, at the, that moment it's stupid and you want to just check it out with somebody else and that's you know, I, I used to have a, a relationship with Gavin where when we were working on advertising music together we had a company together we would go and listen to it. You know, I'd go upstairs and I'd say to Gavin, I need, I need you to listen to something. So I'd sit there. I'd, he'd come down to my studio. We never did uh, adverts together because we didn't need to. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessary. <laughs> um, and so I would press start on the, on the computer. I'd press play. He'd sit at the back, back of the room listening. And by the time I got to the end of the, of the piece, I'd say to him, oh, I know exactly what you mean. You're completely right. Yes, I'll fix it. And he hadn't said anything. And it's just the act of saying, of playing it to somebody who you trust, uh, sometimes illuminates. You you realize all the things that are wrong with it yourself. Yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, I love that you you still do that. You know, a lot of composers they'll start off collaborating and then kind of almost like a in a band and then kind of go in their solo career. But you always go back to those people and work with them. So that's really awesome. Um, but let's dive into how to dra- how to train your dragon two. This isn't your first go at a sequel. In fact, you've done you know tons of sequels. But when you came back for How to Train Your Dragon two, a franchise which you were you know nominated for an Oscar for, uh, what is kind of the first step for a sequel for you? What is is it because you're kind of carrying these these old bag you know this whole bag of old themes from the first film, and I think people expect them even if the story 
is evolving its new territory and requires new stuff. Is that a burden? Is it a blessing to kind of have established thematic material? Or do you, I mean, how do you, that, that whole process work? Well, you begin with the five steps of denial, <laughs> I think. Um, and you try and avoid, uh, and then you, you try and attempt to drink until you forget. And once, that's, once you've run out of time doing that, then you have to just basically sit there and think, okay, well, I better come up with some tunes that kind of, you know, here's the thing, is that the story leads you to what it needs, I always think. Mm -hmm. So if I felt that Dragons 2 would have worked best with all the same themes all the way through, that's what I would have done. Um, but I felt that what the story was asking for, and certainly Dean was saying, was this, you know, this is about a maturing of a character, it's about a maturing of a story, um, a maturing of a set of characters. Everybody, everything moves on, um, and and Hiccup is not he's not going to be content with where we left the end of the last movie. And you can tell that from the very first time you you know you, he sits down on the hill and starts to talk and shows a map. He's looking at a map. He's in he's investigating the rest of the world. Burke's not big enough for him, even though there was you know the expect expectations are that he will become the chief after his father, and that's certainly an expectation his father's putting on him. This is not going to be a, enough for, for this guy. He's, he's bigger than this. So that needed themes that would allow us to explore the rest of the world. So one of the themes is a, you know, it's a map tune. It's, it starts on the map, and it, it's all about uh, you know, needing to find what the rest of the world is like, finding new, you know, new challenges. And then there's, you know, there's things about the the film that you know we had we wrote a song for the you know the two adult characters the two parents right. when they find each other again and so we wrote that song and that helped us create a theme that i realized was perfect for one of them i don't know i don't want to give too much away one of them when something goes horribly wrong and <laughs> so there's a kind of a there's a you know a, a tune that represents a moment of the greatest happiness perhaps in in, in uh, the father's life um, that turns to the most terrible sorrow for everybody else. Um, and so that was one theme. And then there was a theme that I needed that was all about losing and finding because that's what happens in the film. I mean, Hiccup finds a mother that he didn't know he had. Um, you know, he loses Toothless. Um, you know, Toothless... Is, is lost to Drago in, in this sort of hypnosis. Um, uh, but later on, everything, you know, all these things are found. So constantly, all the way through, throughout the movie, the lost and found is the, is the kind of, is one of the main motifs of, of the story. So that needed a tune. And if I looked at all the other themes that I created for the first movie, I mean, some of them could be adapted to suit that, but it just felt that the thematic material musically needed to match the thematic material of the storytelling and mm -hmm. so i just started after the first seven minutes when you get a, an overture of everything from the first movie it's kind of just a it's a sorbet it's to cleanse the palette of everything we wanted to hear from the first movie get it out of the way and then we start afresh and uh i mean and it's it i love that because I, that's the first thing i when i first listened to the album like it was almost like a big rush of everything from the first movie kind of set us off and it did feel like a natural progression it never felt like a you know just a reboot button or anything because it does feel 
the characters are still much I think very much alive in the in the score and you do draw a lot of uh, emotional material from I mean your, your your music is very emotional so I mean I can honestly and I'm not ashamed to say that you've probably made me cry more than I'd care to admit to with your music um, so does a story t as a, you know as a storyteller uh, where do those kind of emotional skills come from is it I mean do you need life experience you know as a human being to be able to be like okay you know this is beauty this is sadness versus you know versus trying to portray it instead you know i actually have lived through beauty and sadness so i know how to portray it musically is that kind of how you kind of touch on those emotions well yeah i mean i'd say that everybody goes through you know extreme joy and extreme sadness you know by the age of one <laughs> you know <laughs> um it, it may be simple uh, it, you know, the reasons why extreme sadness, uh, you know, watching the parent go out the door to be at, uh, at work all day and, you know, having to wait hours and hours and hours for them to come home and the joy when they arrive home, but then the sadness the next morning when they leave again. I mean, these are kind of simple emotions, really, that we've all felt, you know, m millions of times in our lives. I mean, there's extreme ones. I mean, I, yeah, I lost my father when I was 14. So that one kind of probably, you know, built into me a certain, you know, set of, um, you know, extreme yearning for, you know, a father for the rest of my life. And, and that may or may not be in what I did for some of the scenes in this movie. I mean, it could be more about a girlfriend. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, all of these things, you know, being dumped by a, a girl when you're, four, when you're, 16 is, you know, pretty, um, you know, and you think she's the one, and that's going to that's gonna create havoc in your psyche. So all of these things, you know, uh, in everybody's lives, so obviously I'm just trying to reflect them as best I can in as external a way as possible for everybody else so that it resonates, you know. And you're obviously trying to use a, a musical language that, you know, obviously we're trying to do it for ourselves at a certain point, the filmmakers, Right. Uh, composers, everybody's doing it for themselves, but you hope that it, it resonates with other people. And if it was a totally different, odd language that nobody else understood, but that I found very emotional, you know, I might be ahead of my time, but I am using a pretty standard kind of set of, you know, chords and notes that, uh, you know, that we as a society have grown up learning sort of because of film and, and theatre and other forms of storytelling that, you know, perhaps the, this type of music means this to us and this type of music means another thing. I mean, obviously, at the, at the core of that is often the reason that music works a certain way and we've established that those types of musical cliches mean certain things is because the physics of them, you know, the physics of concord and discord, you know, so the fifth going to the, you know, the, the, the sharpened fourth. I mean, the sharpened fourth is this you know, is this, um, you know, it, it, it's a, it's an angle in music that just doesn't, doesn't let you relax. It, it, it has a, a form of tension with it. And the fifth gives you tension. So hence the, you know, the, the sharp and fourth will rise to the fifth and you'll get tension and release. It's kind of pretty simple, but obviously lots of people have taken this, these kind of really simplistic pieces of physics and music and made such complex, um, you know, com complex systems of 
of tension release that, you know, you you know the whole of West Side Story is based on, on on an interval that, you know, was called the Devil's Interval, this augmented fourth. So um, there's lots of there's lots of ways of doing it, and as I as I said at the beginning, you know, it is about there's a certain level of it about manipulation, but mm-hmm. I, I enjoy being manipulated as long as I don't feel I'm being pushed too hard, and that's. That's one of the things I've always tried to do is not be overt about the manipulation is is to try and either lead people or or always be just a little bit of a step behind them. So, you know, the spotting of cues is very important in a movie as to you know, where music comes, why it why it's there and where it changes. And so to always try and wait until as an audience member I would have understood the change and then the music just backs up my my feeling of oh this the story has moved into a very interesting place here if the music does it too soon doesn't give the audience a chance to to think of it themselves i find that to be um kind of a bit of a it's like being bullied <laughs> gently bullied and i don't like that i i, I don't like that in, in filmmaking so I, I i do as a style choice i try not to do that myself well i mean i do i mean i think you hit the nail on the head because that's you, you do. I do seek out films, and people do seek out movies and, and music to be moved. I think you know you, you expect to be moved, so I think there should be a slight manipulation there. But I, I do agree that your music does just you know just the right amount. It's I mean it's the, the perfect level that you you found here. Um, so as we kind of wind down, I do have just a few more questions, kind of a little bit more generic, not just focused on um, any particular project, but. So, I mean, what are your thoughts of uh, film music today? Do you think that uh, creativity is winning or is uh, marketability winning? No, the temp is winning, I'm winning, I'm afraid. The temp? So yeah. Temp the is temp winning. being the temp track. I mean, right. the, pro- the problem has always been this, but, you know, the pressure on composers to basically just deliver what basically was in the temp is just is greater than ever. Uh, I mean, it's very interesting when you... <laughs> when you find, you know, I finally created something, uh, I guess, in Bourne that was a bit different from everything else. And so when you see lots and lots of things having that style suddenly pop up, you know, you can hear the temp. I mean, you can even hear the changes in the same place. You can hear the kind of the the shifts that were in the original cue that was temped in. <laughs> you can see that they've, you know, they've just followed the format of, of that piece. And that's, it's hard, to, and I've been on I've been on both sides of it. You know, um, I was talking to Alan Silvestri the other day about um, ants. The very beginning of ants was uh, as you fly into the colony was was tempted with a piece of his from uh, Mouse Hunt. A brilliant piece, actually, it was a brilliant, brilliant piece of music and great, you know, film music. And and uh, I remember I said to him, I said, you know, that was there for the longest time, I and mean, it was really almost impossible to get rid of that. Uh, he was laughing, <laughs> you know, and you know we we've all done it to each other, as it were. But right. you know, I'd I'd like to think that the music from the beginning of Ants as we fly into the colony doesn't sound like Mouse Hunt, and I mean, it doesn't, but it's hopefully you know got the same essence in it that the filmmakers were asking for in the in the original temp because they you know they found that to be so delightful and and flamboyant and and fun. You know, could we bring that kind of level of energy as we flew in? And it took Harry and I quite a long time to really kind of get them off mouse hunt and back onto the you know, onto the cue that we were making. We had to make something that felt the same but 
unique for the film. So, right. and it just takes more time. And in, in these days in post productions, you know, being squeezed because of you know visual effects and everything that's in live action, it's very hard. I mean, again, this is another thing I found that in in animation, you have more time to kind of get get everybody used to the idea that the temp isn't isn't the master. You know, but in live action, everybody's moving so fast they get real nervous about it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you do hear that. I mean, it's Dark Knight, Inception. You know, it's uh, it's been plaguing live action for a long time. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So, kind of you know, as a composer, you do also work uh, with directors, and they're kind of your creative uh, guidance. Um. So, what types of uh, characteristics do you like in a director, and are there any characteristics that uh, make your job harder? Well, the thing you want in a director is you want somebody who really understands the story they're telling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because that really helps you. And, and the things you worry about in a director are if they are really into music, they sometimes get into specifics. And specifics are dangerous because for a director, they are supremely knowledgeable in virtually every other aspect of filmmaking they can tell you exactly what lens they want they can tell you the you know the costume you know style that it should be they can talk to the lighting guys about which which kind of lights they use um, and, but when it comes to music if they know nothing about music uh, they rely on you, mm-hmm. which is, means you have to be the conduit. You have to really interpret for them what they're after. And if they know a little bit about music, it gets really dangerous because then they start to talk in musical terms rather than just dramatic terms. And, and that, again, it cuts off your angles as to how you can achieve something for them that's, that's interesting and unique. Right. Um, I mean, uh, and, that, and that's, that's the only dangerous thing. I mean, if, if, a, if a director is you know, is nervous um, if a director is, in, uh, you know, in fighting with the studio as well. I mean, I've had that where I've been right in the middle between the studio and the directors. And sometimes you, you have to kind of create music that is, you know, is okay for both sides. Right. <laughs> and that, that makes it, you know, harder sometimes. Oh, yeah. or, or maybe better. I mean, sometimes that, that, uh, the, those difficulties are, are, are what stretch you to find the right thing for the movie because... Um, you know, as I always say, you know, when somebody comes in, somebody like Jeffrey will come in and listen to a cue, and he's got an innate sense as an as an audience member of when you're doing something that doesn't that seems at odds with what what the story is doing, uh, and he may he may suggest things to to try, and even if they seem a bit crazy at the time. You've got to listen to the fact that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you might not like that there's a problem because you thought the piece was perfect, but that problem is there, and it's going to be there for every audience member probably. If if Jeffrey, if it hit Jeffrey that quick, everybody's going to have that feeling. The solution is up to you, and he's great for saying, I'm not, you know, you could do something darker, lighter, brighter, you know, you know, duller, faster, slower, but... You know, I know there's a problem there. So it's important to listen to everybody, really, sometimes. You know, I mean, it's hard when there's lots of people involved because right. you get opinions. And, and I've always said that the, the moment after the first kind of, you know, like the director hears a cue, the first thing he says 
my mind goes into overdrive, and I often hear the solution within a few seconds. Um, and then if I found that over the years, that if you have a lot of people then who have to chime in with their opinion, um, and they're all trying to find this, a way of of giving their opinion because they're being paid to be there sometimes. Right, yeah. you know, very often the very first one is the most important, and it's the one that you you, you hear the solution to immediately. And I, I sometimes just put my hand up and say, give me a second, everybody <laughs> just sit there, have a coffee, and in five minutes you've often fixed it. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, also just kind of looking... For the future, um, uh, will you be coming back to live action anytime soon? Um, it, it depends, really. It depends on, you know, I, I'm trying to limit what I do at the moment. Right. Um, you know, there's lots of directors I've worked with in the past that I do love very much and I'd love to work with again, but I'm trying to sort of keep my palette clear to, to do some, you know, more experimenting for my own sake and maybe for film music in the sense that when I come back, I, I might have some new ideas. <laughs> Well, I, I, I mean, I do miss you when you go away these for these long stretches. But I mean, you are working. You're working on a concert piece right now, aren't you? Yes, I'm working on an oratorio for that will be performed in 2016, um, and we'll record it next year. So um, it should have, and I'm hoping to also do a record an album of of suites as well. I, I want to wow. interpret some film music myself my own my own music and, and sort of do some suites that I never got to finish properly or never quite got to do the way that I think musically they could be. Um, you know, very often we, we kind of cobble together suites for albums that are made from cues and, and the cue might have gone off in a direction because of the drama that was happening and, right. and musically I'd always wanted to go in a slightly different direction. So I'm going to try and take the opportunity to, to finish things up and, and really explore some of the music that I have written in films in a slightly different way. Most of most of it will, you know, be the same, but you know, I'd like to do one of face off after all these years and where, you know, it it kind of where the melodies are completed and, and you know and, and some of the some of the ideas are kind of brought to a, you know fulfillment that it was wrong to do in the film, mm -hmm. but just for musical reasons it may be it, it, it may be more kind of interesting to hear it completed in just a, for just for the musical sense of it. You know, I mean, if there's purists out there, they might get pissed off because <laughs> oh, he goes to the subdominant. That's not right. <laughs> you know, the film it doesn't go to the subdominant. But I mean, at a certain point, I mean, I think it, it would be fun to play around with some of this material. I think that's amazing. I would love to hear that. I mean, to for you to go back and even touch on your first score. I think that that's. Uh... Incredible, and hopefully you do endurance because endurance is probably my favorite score of yours. I just I don't know it just resonates with me in a way that it's a so do a suite of endurance please. <laughs> All right, okay. Well, um, yeah. And just uh, just one more question here. Um, I love your percussion. Your percussion is kind of part of your identity and uh, probably the most identifiable identifiable thing about your music and you've managed to fit it in in um, almost all your scores so what is the source of it i mean how did you come for that sound to be it's in kind of this uh in your repertoire it's kind of like a drumline sound but it, it, it just it can fit in a latin sounding beat or it can fit in an action sequence i mean how did that kind of come to be you know i think i was talking to my my old college 
Trinity College of Music in London about this, and I, I, I was telling them that one of the most important resources that they gave me as a student, you know, apart from teachers and rehearsal rooms and, you know, and, uh, and a schedule and, and a reason to finish pieces, you know, all those things you want. One of, the, one of the great resources for me was right in the basement, uh, which was um, a room that had a load of record players and a big record collection. And yeah, they had lots and lots of classical music, but they also had a really interesting group of records that uh, were of world music. And this is 1982. This is I didn't have the kind of the knowledge or the understanding that this stuff was out there. So just going through this record collection as a as a you know as an 18 year old, I discovered all this you know drumming of Burundi and you know and gamelan and things and all this music that I would listen to absolutely fascinated by I'd never heard it before up till then I'd heard plenty of pop music I'd heard plenty of classical music but nothing like that and um, and it and I but I had been really keen on on Peter Gabriel's fourth album which had come out before that and I'd loved that and I didn't know where the resources where he how could he have thought of all those things and I suddenly realized that there was this world music that you could go to <laughs> and listen to all these other artists from the rest of the world and and that's you know and that's a whole different perspective on what music is and I think that's where my interest in in you know should we say non classical percussion and non you know was in it was born and and so I studied you know when I was at college I studied a bit of percussion I've never been a great player so I could never really do it but mm-hmm. I think I had a, a you know once I once I hit the computer, then the computer allows you as a bad percussionist to sort sort out your your bad timing, and and I could just I could construct things and and and, and make them accurate so that they <laughs> they felt right. You know, you could edit everything very closely. So that allowed me to program things, and, uh, and you know, there's been a, you know, there's lots of different albums have probably meant a lot to me that way. But uh, I mean, there's. Uh, and, Diane Dudu Rose as well. He's a Senegalese, Senegalese uh, drummer who has um, an ensemble, and uh, and that stuff has been that was very important. But, you know, a lot of um, the Italian job and things like that right. are, are very influenced by him. So it's it's basically just having heard stuff at an age when I was still you know plastic. <laughs> still malleable yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i mean uh, world music because uh, i'm uh i'm half turkish half polish i was born here but my parents you know are from europe so growing up i wasn't listening to that stuff in the car it was you know gypsy kings or uh, turkish music or anything that they had so i think that did play into my leading into kind of that sound that i've discovered with your music and hans and harry and all those people because it definitely uh, you can feel it there for sure um and just the final question that I have here that I ask every composer is um, if you could score any film ever made pretending the original score never existed, uh, which film would you choose? Oh, um, I think I'd like to have scored, I'd love to do the comedy score for Triumph of the Will. Triumph of the Will, wow, okay. So instead of all the Parsifal and everything we were talking about earlier about how you felt, you know, these, the Aryan race was, the, it was. I'd love to do the comedy score where it basically takes the piss out. Of them. <laughs> well, that is the that is an awesome answer. But I mean, you, and you, uh, Rat Race, it's also one of my favorite scores. So, I mean, you did a great job. I don't know how you managed to make that work in crazy slapstick comedy, but 
it works. So you definitely have a knack for it. Um, John, thank you so much for your time. I, I, it's been such a pleasure to, to speak with you. And um, uh, congratulations on, of course, all your work. And good luck with uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2 and uh, your concert piece. And I cannot wait to hear it when it's finished. So thank you again. Thank you very much.